Hello, and you are listening to Ecojustice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste. This is part two of our special four-part series called the Amazon Defenders. On today's show, we discuss criminalizing activism, the Stephen Donziger case. And we are lucky to have Stephen with us on the show today. Stephen Donziger is a New York-based attorney, human rights advocate, and a member of the international legal team that won the historic $9.5 billion Ecuador pollution judgment against Chevron. Stephen is currently in his 16th month of house arrest without trial after he refused what appears to be an unlawful order to turn over his computer and cell phone to Chevron as he fights to protect the rights and lives of his indigenous clients, including the right to confidential communications with their own lawyer. Welcome to the Ecojustice Radio special four-part series called Amazon Defenders, where we will break down the environmental and indigenous issues happening in the Amazon rainforest, from the oil exploitation in Ecuador and the Western Amazon to the impacts of deforestation, fires, and COVID in Brazil and the Eastern Amazon region. Today on part two of Amazon Defenders, we investigate the story of New York-based lawyer Stephen Donzinger, who represented Ecuadorian communities demanding justice from Chevron, Texaco, for one of the largest ever oil disasters, also referred to as the Amazon Chernobyl. We have a a pretty powerful show today. Our guest story is quite remarkable, and you could even say unbelievable. It seems much of the corporate-funded media and even many of the public media and nonprofit outlets who, let's be honest, still take money from oil and gas interests are not covering this story. And if they are, it's slanted in favor of Chevron. In an historic judgment, Chevron was found liable by Ecuadorian courts in order to pay $9.5 billion. Chevron says, nope. They'll never pay. Instead, Chevron launched an extraordinary racketeering and extortion lawsuit against the Ecuadorian and U.S. attorneys and various consultants, alleging that they are all lying about Chevron's pollution and that the entire case was sham litigation. Chevron has turned our guest, Stephen Donzinger, into a corporate political prisoner, and they are using retaliatory attacks to intimidate the Ecuadorian indigenous peoples and farmers who have been harmed by the oil giant's massive contamination of their ancestral lands. On today's show, human rights attorney Stephen Donziger joins us to talk about the case, what actually took place, the historic retaliation against himself and the Ecuadorian peoples, and how Chevron's actions set a dangerous precedent and represent a growing and serious threat to the ability of civil society to hold corporations accountable for their misdeeds around the world. Thank you for tuning in to part two, Amazon Defenders, Criminalizing Activism, the Stephen Donzinger case. It is my honor to welcome our guest, New York-based human rights attorney, Stephen Donzinger. Welcome to Ecojustice Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Stephen, let's start out by 
setting the scene for our listeners so that they understand what brought you down to Ecuador in 1993 when you were part of the team that filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of 30,000 farmers and indigenous peoples against Texaco for the polluting of an area of the Western Amazon referred to as the Amazon Chernobyl by locals and experts. Explain what happened to the people and the land and, and why there, there was and is this lawsuit. Well, thank you for having me, Jessica. I mean, it's a, it's a long story that spans over 25 years. I'll keep it real simple. Um, the bottom line is uh, Texaco, now owned by Chevron, went into this delicate ecosystem, the Amazon in Ecuador in the mid-1960s. They found oil. They had a contract with Ecuador's government to drill at a, across an enormous 1,500-square-mile area of forest that was home to five indigenous nations. And they discovered oil in the middle of Kofan territory in 1967. They built hundreds of wells over the next 20 or so years. They built about a thousand online waste pits into which they deposited drilling muds, which are cancer causing, you know, toxic chemicals or heavy metals found in the ground when you drill for oil. They ran pipes out of the sides of the pits into rivers and streams that the local uh, indigenous peoples and other farmers that had moved down there relied on for their drinking water, their bathing, their fishing. And essentially over you know, the 25 years they operated from the mid 60s to the early 90s, they engaged in a deliberate mass industrial poisoning. When I say deliberate, they, they deliberately polluted to save money. Um, it was clearly foreseeable that the result would be a lot of people getting sick, getting cancer and dying, and they didn't care. Um, when the indigenous peoples of the area, you know, saw, you know, in the 60s, early 70s, what they were doing, and they asked the Texaco engineers why, you know, black oil was in their streams and rivers, the engineers reassured them by lying and basically saying oil was medicinal, and it was like drinking milk with vitamins in it. It, it was healthy for them. It was a complete and utter, you know, disrespect for these people who lived there, for humanity, for the earth, um, for basic decency. It was also blatantly illegal and criminal. So, you know, I first went down there in the early 1990s with a group of lawyers led by Massachusetts-based Ecuadorian named Cristobal Bonifaz, and we went down with doctors and lawyers to investigate what we had heard was this awful catastrophe. And you know, so began a, a, a journey that I've been on now for many, many years, starting just after I went to law school. We filed the suit in 1993. We won the suit in 2011. And ever since then, we've been trying to collect the judgment because Chevron won't pay. And I personally have been having to deal with the attacks they made against me and other lawyers um, here in New York, where I've been under home detention now for 16 months on a misdemeanor for which no lawyer in U.S. history has ever been locked up for even one day. So it's an extraordinary situation. I think it's really the politics of corporate power and using our judicial system to attack, you know, corporate accountability advocates and really trying to use me as an example to intimidate all people who engage in this work. But you know, that's where things stand now. I'm still, I live with the, my wife and 14-year-old son. 
And, you know, we're strong, we're, we're resilient and we get what's happening. We, we get, we have a fair amount of support. I have some great lawyers and uh, we're hopeful we'll get through this. And regardless, the larger case lives on in, in terms of enforcement actions um, in other jurisdictions that are being used to try to collect Chevron's assets to force them to comply with the judgment. Great, thank you. And we're gonna dive deeper into those issues and especially, you know, what led up to your incarceration in essence, and um, also what's happening on your behalf and, and what are some of the solutions that people can uh, involve themselves in. So these communities and, and these indigenous peoples, they continue to suffer from these oil spills and these leaks. How so? What's happening to them today? It's as bad as ever. I mean, basically the pollution has a cumulative impact over time. The exposures to the toxicity, to the toxins are, are in the air, in the water, food, um, in the environment. So the people who live in this area generally are exposed multiple times a day to cancer-causing toxins. And, you know, ever since Chevron left in the early 1990s, there's been virtually no actions to clean up, mitigate the impacts of their deliberate systematic pollution. There's still billions of gallons of you know, toxic oil waste in this part of the Amazon in the environment. And the state oil company, PetroEcuador, which took over Chevron's operation, um, continues to some degree to engage in, in some of the same practices that continue to contaminate. And you know, the pits that Chevron built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s are still there polluting the water today and the air and the groundwater and the soil. So uh, the, the rates of cancer are off the charts. If you look at basic, the basic independent health evaluations of cancer rates in the region, there's probably been thousands and thousands of people who have died of cancer. You know, you can't go into one of the communities and, you know, if you ask people, does anyone know a family member who's died of cancer? And literally 90% of the hands shoot up. It's just been devastating and it remains devastating. There was one working nurse in the region, Rosa Moreno, who passed away in 2017 of cancer. She took care of so many little babies who got sick or had cancer, childhood leukemia, which you almost never see anywhere in the world is off the charts, um, according to these health evaluations. And it's, a, it's really a humanitarian crisis. It's a public health catastrophe. And I think it's essentially a crime of what's called ecocide, which is kind of a new thing in the law where that is trying to get sort of acceptance as the fifth atrocity crime, you know, after genocide and crimes against humanity, war crimes and the like. Um, and it's basically, you know, destroying the natural environment in such a way that people who live in it can't sustain themselves. And that's really what's happened in Ecuador. You know, people are dying left and right from their exposures to the oil contamination, while Chevron spends literally two, three billion dollars on dozens and dozens of law firms and hundreds and hundreds of lawyers to just try to muck up the ability of our team to collect on a judgment that the Ecuadorans legitimately won in the courts of their own country where Chevron wanted the case to be held. So it's a very, very bad faith, a form of really judicial treachery and trickery. Yeah. And Chevron's paying 
massive sums of money to the legal profession, to the big law firms, to block the ability to collect this judgment. And part of that strategy is to attack me. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get into that too. The and and just one thing I wanted to point out that that stuck with me when you and I spoke previously is that there's no word for cancer in the indigenous languages down there. That's correct. I mean, uh, you know, historically there's no word for it because living in the forest, um, there was no cancer. I mean, you know, cancer is caused by exposure to chemicals and and industrial chemicals and heavy metals and. Um, you know, it was cancer was unknown before Texaco showed up in the mid 1960s and started dumping, you know, oil waste into the rivers and streams. So, yeah. um, you know, that's true. There was no word for it. And unfortunately, now they've had the indigenous peoples have had to create a lot of new words that were formerly not in their vocabularies. And you had said that Chevron has not offered any form of rehabilitation or reparations, but there's allegations that Texaco did provide remediation, supervised and approved by the government of Ecuador. In addition, they also argued that Petro Ecuador, the state-owned oil company and partner of Texaco, is actually the one that's responsible for the oil spills and the dumping and not Chevron, who bought Texaco. Yeah, that's what they say. And in terms of the first argument that there was a cleanup, um, Texaco claims it spent $40 million in the mid nineties on a cleanup. I mean, you know, $40 million is maybe one tenth of one penny on the dollar of what they really owe. And I don't know where the money went, but it didn't go to a cleanup. And they took a handful of a thousand open air waste pits that are online from which they run you know, pipes into rivers and streams to empty out the toxins into the waterways. And they covered them up with dirt without cleaning them out. It's like treating cancer with a Band-Aid, basically. And, you know, the the blaming Petro-Ecuador, that is the state oil company, is, I mean, to us, it's a non-starter because Texaco, now owned by Chevron, was the exclusive operator of the oil fields and under customary law relating to oil field operations, the operator is 100% responsible for the environmental damage. The operator makes all the engineering decisions, the production decisions, and, you know, Texaco exclusively made the decisions to pollute in violation of their contractual obligations, in violation of Ecuadorian environmental law, and in violation of their duty to people who live there to, you know, to treat the environment and the people with proper care so they wouldn't harm them. So we believe Chevron is 100% responsible for the damage that Texaco caused and continues to cause by having abandoned, you know, these thousand waste pits and really left the area in a very, you know, destroyed, poisoned kind of state. It doesn't mean, by the way, that Ecuador's oil company isn't blameworthy because they've done some you know, improper practices as well when they took over the fields after Texaco left. But the lawsuit is about what Texaco and Chevron did during the time that they operated and its ongoing effects. Stephen, the lawsuit originally started in New York in the 1990s, and then it was moved to Ecuador in the 2000s. Can you explain what took place during that time and why they had this move from New York to a, a totally different country? Sure. So, um, the, the Ecuadorian plaintiffs, that is the affected communities who brought the lawsuit, didn't trust their own court system because Texaco had been, you know, dumping literally millions of gallons of waste into the waterways for, on a daily basis for years. 
and they never had been held liable for even one dollar of damages during that entire time. So the people didn't trust their own court system. They wanted to sue in the United States, but once that happened, suit was filed in November of 1993 in federal court in New York. Um, Chevron's main defense was, no, we can't sue up here. This case is properly heard in Ecuador because that's where the damage occurred. And we argued, no, it's properly heard in the United States because that's where the decision to pollute was made. That took literally 10 years of time for that issue to sort itself out in various courts. Like the Ecuadorans were fighting to get into the courthouse in New York which is where Texaco's global headquarters was located this entire period of time. And Texaco kept trying to block them from getting into court. And ultimately Texaco, by then Chevron had bought Texaco, they won that battle and they were able to send it down to Ecuador, surely thinking that they could quickly get the case dismissed for political reasons, just because they enjoyed so much influence in the country. And they had polluted with impunity for, you know, by that point for 30 years, and they never even had to deal with one lawsuit against them. So <clears throat> I think they thought we would go away if they were able to move the case to Ecuador. And obviously, we didn't. We reorganized ourselves, and we started working with a group of great Ecuadorian lawyers, um, created a real international team led by the local lawyers in Ecuador. And we refiled the same lawsuit as much as we could under Ecuadorian law in 2003. And then the case started up. I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, Texaco's first line of defense is they were trying to avoid the entire trial. And in October of 2003, it started in a town called Lago Agrio, which was you know the epicenter of where Texaco first found oil in Ecuador. Lago Agrio in Spanish is the Spanish for Sour Lake, which is the name of the town in Texas where Texaco's headquarters was. So they basically went on to indigenous territory and you know, created a town around the wells that they built. And they called it um, an English, you know, they called it an English name after a town in Texas. Um, in the meantime, they displaced most of the Kofan who had to move deeper into the jungle to avoid the industrial development and the pollution. So we were back in Ecuador and, you know, Chevron had agreed to accept jurisdiction in Ecuador as a condition of the case moving from New York to Ecuador. And the first thing they did on the first day of the trial was they tried to claim the court had no jurisdiction over them, you know, and so began years and years of bad faith litigation. I mean, they just do anything they can to get an advantage. They change their position. They lie. They threaten judges. Um, they try to they tried to, you know, put sand in the gears of justice by filing literally hundreds and hundreds of duplicative motions asking for the same thing, trying to tie up the court. And, you know, their first goal was that there not be a trial. Once we overcame that, they then tried to sabotage the trial that we had been seeking for all these years. And they did that just by trying to file paper and take advantage of their superior resources and their law firms to just get in the way of the case and obstruct it, sabotage it, and hope we would run out of money and go away. So that took eight long years. And ultimately, we did win a judgment against them in 2011, which was a huge historic victory. Let's hold it right there. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back to talk about that historic victory and then also a little bit more on that that 10-year history. So come right back. You are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a public supported media outlet. 
please consider making a donation to ensure that we can continue to provide socially and environmentally driven content. Donations can be made at ecojusticeradio.org or socal350.org. And we hope that you're enjoying part two of Amazon Defenders, Criminalizing Activism, the Stephen Donzinger case with guest Stephen Donzinger, New York-based human rights attorney, and our host, myself, Jessica Aldridge. So Stephen, you were just talking about what had happened during that, that those 10 long years from 2003 to 10 years later to, to having this trial down in Ecuador um, to get this ruling on what, what Chevron now owes for the Ecuadorian people due to the, the toxic wasteland that they have created down there. I think it's also important to note that and remind our listeners or those that may not know that during this time, the uh, Ecuadorian government under President Correa revised the constitution to be the first country in the world to codify the legal rights of nature. And did that have any effect on the outcome of the case as well? And then maybe just talk a little bit again about what that outcome was. I know that there was a a settlement of 18.5, but then it was reduced to to, to 50% of that in uh, two and a half years later. And why is that? Yeah, so, you know, the in the middle of the trial, Ecuador elected a president who was a nationalist and, uh, you know, educated with a PhD in economics in, in a U.S. university. And he basically set kind of a tone for the country that I think allowed the court system to do its job properly, that is to become neutral, um, to analyze facts, rule on legal questions without being intimidated by corporate power, oil money, you know, interests. And uh, I think that had a great deal to do with our ability to get a fair trial in Ecuador, which Chevron continually tried to deny to us by trying to, you know, again, throw sand into the gears of the court system, threatening judges, filing motions, threatening to put judges in jail. I mean, it was, you know, one thing I quickly learned as a young lawyer is, you know, while lawyers are trained to go to court and use the law to achieve a certain outcome, the lawyers for Chevron were trained to just look at the court system as just like a tool of their own power, you know, a a, a system to try to bend to their will, as opposed to a system to to try to litigate within an affair manner. And they were constantly threatening judges. They were constantly, um, you know, violating Ecuadorian procedural law and abusing the system as a way to try to delay any final resolution because the evidence against them was utterly overwhelming. And there were 64,000 chemical sampling results from dozens and dozens of their former well sites that proved massive amounts of contamination, sometimes 200, 300 times over acceptable regulatory norms in Ecuador. I mean, they would, there were just some sites were just like almost pure oil in the soil. You know, there were, they were, um, they had created just a, a, a terrible, terrible environmental problem. And, you know, they tried, they knew they were basically toast legally. So they tried to just block the trial from finishing by trying to constantly delay it. Why was it that they, the, it was $18.5 billion, but then two years later, they didn't owe $18.5 billion anymore. They only owed $9.5. That's a great question. So in the law, there's something called actual damages, and then there's something called punitive damages. Actual damages, in theory, is the amount of money it would take to do 
the cleanup to correct the harm that they caused. Punitive damages is the amount of money that the court would impose on top of that as punishment to teach the company a lesson so it never commits the same you know, harmful acts again and also sends a message to others in the industry that you know, it's not worth it economically to try to play these types of games. Um, so we won you know, actual damages in the amount of approximately $9 billion, and then the court doubled that. They added another nine for punitive just because Chevron had behaved so recklessly and deliberately polluting, and also because they had abused the administration of justice, you know, by trying to obstruct the trial process. And when Chevron appealed the decision to Ecuador Supreme Court, the Supreme Court knocked out the punitive damages claim, claiming it had no basis for it in Ecuadorian law. I mean, we respectfully disagree, but it had the effect of having the amount of damages to the amount of the actual damages, which is nine and a half billion with interest. It's you know, probably up now to around $12 billion. Um, but that's the reason they reduced the damages award. And after the 2011, right, the decision came in 2011, Chevron immediately countersued, which was presided over by Judge Lewis Kaplan, who's a federal, um, who's from the Federal Southern District of New York. So this is going back to the United States. And during the the, the countersuit, the judge, Judge Kaplan, asserted that the oil giant was, quote, a company of considerable importance to our economy that employs thousands all over the world that supplies a group of commodities, gasoline, heating oil, and other fuels and lubricants on which every one of us depends on every single day. So given this reasoning, he made a sweeping worldwide injunction preventing the enforcement of the Ecuadorian ruling against Chevron. How is it that a United States judge has that much international overreach? Well, that's a great question. The fact is the judge doesn't have that kind of authority and he totally overstepped his authority and he was reversed on that decision very quickly by the federal appellate court in New York. The fact he actually tried to do that is just astonishing on so many levels and really shows you the level of arrogance of not only Judge Kaplan, but you see this time and time again where U.S. courts are trying to sort of reach their long arms into other parts of the world and arrest people and determine what's right or wrong for people in other countries. You know, the idea that a trial judge in Manhattan, you know, in a completely truncated proceeding with no jury, he excluded all the evidence that had the Ecuadorian court had accumulated to find Chevron live, but wouldn't look at any of it. Would only look at this one witness that she, to whom Chevron had paid $2 million, who admitted lying repeatedly, claimed I was in a bribery plot to bribe the judge in Ecuador, which is completely false. There's no corroborating evidence. It's been rejected by 29 appellate judges in Ecuador and Canada, that notion that that's what happened. Um, but he wanted to destroy the case. And he's tried to do it in different ways over time. And one of the ways is he tried to create a global injunction from his Manhattan trial court to basically dictate to any judge in the entire world in any country that the Ecuadorians might think of going to to try to force Chevron to comply with the law and enforce their judgment against Chevron's assets. He tried to prevent all of them from even entertaining an enforcement action. 
what authority does a New York trial court judge have over a judge in France or England or Canada or Brazil or Argentina or Indonesia or Australia? I mean, it's just crazy to even think about. And he was quickly reversed. But it really gave you a sense of his degree of arrogance. He's a former tobacco industry defense lawyer. That's what he was doing before he was appointed to the bench by Bill Clinton. And I think that he sort of has taken it on as part of his life's mission um, over the last 10 years to try to just protect Chevron, destroy the case, and use it as a vehicle to try to intimidate human rights lawyers and human rights campaigners and environmental justice folks and corporate accountability people and people who care about indigenous rights, you know, who wants to use this case to, you know, to try to discourage that kind of work, which, as you know, is so vital to the well-being of so many people, not to mention our planet. You know, this is critically important work. So he really overstepped his bounds. And in my opinion, he continues to overstep his bounds and he continues to be challenged. He's, he, I think he's isolated in terms of all the judges that have looked at this. And I think one reason why he has gone after me, and he's the person most responsible for me being in house arrest right now without trial, is because we have continued to challenge him and call out what he did is wrong. Wrong both factually in terms of accepting, you know, paid Chevron witness testimony from an admitted liar, as well as procedurally to, you know, really abuse the process to try to let Chevron you know, well, I mean, the reason I'm in house arrest, just to be clear, I mean, the ostensible reason is because he ordered me to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, you know, basically the entire case file. And that's unheard of. I mean, that's just, lawyers don't do that. You know, I'm litigating a case. So I told him, look, I can't do that. I've got to appeal that before I turn over anything. I mean, I'm a rule of law person. I always go to court. I'm respectful. Um, I believe in the law. I get that the system is structured to favor the wealthy, you know, whatever. I accept that. I go in and I fight for my clients. But the idea that any lawyer would be ordered by a judge to turn over his computer and cell phone to adversary counsel is, is, has never happened before in this country. So I was well within my duties, my ethical obligations to my clients to appeal it. And while it was on appeal, he got so mad at me, he charged me criminally with criminal contempt of court while my appeal was pending of his order that I believe is unlawful. And by the way, that appeal is still pending. So it's unclear whether his order is lawful or not. In the meantime, he charged me with criminal contempt and had me put under house arrest where I've been sitting here for 16 months. There's never been a lawyer in New York, Jessica, who's ever held pretrial on a criminal contempt charge for even a day. They're treating the case as a misdemeanor, meaning the maximum sentence if convicted is six months as a way to, to deny me a jury for the second time. And they're trying to use the case to force me into prison for six months with no jury. But I've already been in my home for 16 months. And the longest sentence ever given a lawyer in New York for someone actually convicted of criminal contempt of court is three months of home confinement. So you know, this, they're punishing me right now without a trial. It's a violation of our Constitution, I believe. It's certainly a violation of international law. International human rights groups have condemned it. It's wrongful. I mean, look, there's lots of activists and lawyers around the world who were in prison and who many, some of whom were actually murdered because of their legal work and political work. You know, so I want to keep this in perspective. But for the United States of America, this has never been seen before. And I think that's what's most concerning for all of us who care about, you know, free speech and 
the right to advocate and the right to hold corporations accountable for their wrongdoing. And I, I want to break down uh, some of that. Two things. I, I, I want to talk about this, the, the, the guy who lied, this judge who, who said that you were ghostwriting for, or I, I read that somewhere that you were, that you told him what to say in the Arcadorian case. And then I also want to talk about how Chevron's coming after you and the amount of money that they're saying that you owe, the, the, the cases that they're bringing against you. So with this individual, Albert Guerrera, who's a judge, Chevron filed a civil case alleging that the $9.5 billion judgment had been secured through bribery and fraud. Backing the company's claim was an Ecuadorian trial judge, is the guy that I think you were speaking about, Albert Guerrera, who testified that he'd been paid by you to write the eventual ruling against Chevron. And you were accused of engaging in obstruction of justice, witness tampering, judicial coercion, and bribery in obtaining the judgment. Is that, can you expand upon that? Is that, is that true? I mean, I mean, is that what they brought, the case they brought up against you? So yeah, let me break it down. This was a retaliation case in which they sued me under the civil racketeering statute, which was passed by Congress to target the mafia. So the basic theory was that I and the other lawyers and the consultants and people who who won the judgment against them had engaged in racketeering, that the judgment, the, case, the entire case in Ecuador that we had worked on for years and years and years and won, based on voluminous scientific evidence affirmed by six appellate courts, 29 judges, was somehow a sham. And as part of their retaliation, they tried. This sort of gets to the title of your show. They wanted to criminalize me. Well, they couldn't prosecute me in the normal course because no prosecutor would take the case because this was all bogus. So they went after me in a civil lawsuit. They initially sued me for the most money anyone has ever been sued for in U.S. history, $60 billion, which is treble damages on the initial judgment. Um, and when you get sued for money in a civil case, you're entitled to a jury. They didn't want a jury to look at this false evidence. So they dropped all the money damages claims on the eve of the trial, knowing Judge Kaplan, who had signaled to them he was on their side, would rule against me. And Judge Kaplan did that by partly by excluding all of the environmental evidence that proved Chevron's guilt in the Ecuador case. And also by letting Chevron pay this guy, Alberto Guerra, $2 million to come in and claim that I approved the bribe, a bribe of the trial judge in exchange for being able to ghostwrite the judgment. It's false. There's no corroborating evidence except the words out of his mouth. You know, Chevron got emails and computers at that time from me, from the Ecuadorian lawyers. There's, there's no evidence of any communication with the judge. And there is evidence, forensic evidence, that the judge, you know, wrote the judgment himself over a period of three or four months by opening and closing a Word document over 480 times. And the document became the judgment. So this was just all made up by a paid witness. They never would have put this before a jury because it would have been rejected. And that's why they dropped all the money damages claims. So Judge Kaplan could just decide the case alone and he reverse engineered the outcome. And again, it's been rejected by 29 other judges. I don't know what, what more I can say, except all those allegations that you just read were derivative of this lying witness. In other words, because Judge Kaplan found that I bribed the judge, which again, didn't happen. He also found that the money that I had 
transfer from my law firm to my clients in Ecuador for case expenses was part of wire fraud, like wiring money to Ecuador because he found that the case was a fraud, was to him a felony offense. Um, getting investment money in to fund the case was money laundering. Um, so he took all, he just created all these so-called crimes in, a, in an effort really to criminalize me and others who had worked on the case, criminalize human rights lawyering. And he allowed Chevron to take a statute meant to target organized crime and use it against a, a team of human rights advocates. And the only way that could work is if he let them, you know, charge us as if we were an organized criminal racketeering conspiracy for winning a multi-billion dollar judgment against Chevron in a court of law in Ecuador that again has been confirmed by six appellate courts. So it's really an extraordinary, audacious thing that they did. I think what they did is in and of itself the racketeering conspiracy, not what we did. I think in any fair court system in any country that really truly respects the rule of law, they would never be allowed to even bring these allegations into court. And having done so, they would really be held fully liable because I think what they've done is, is in itself criminal. And again, is, is the, rack, the true racketeering in this case. And it's designed to protect Chevron's money. And it's designed to protect the fossil fuel industry at large, which is an industry that, as you know, is you know, kind of often pollutes as a matter of its business model and leaves taxpayers or vulnerable communities with the bill after they, you know, drill for oil in a certain place and leave with the profits. So, you know, I think ultimately it's important people not get too distracted by what happened to me. You know, I'm hopeful I'll get through this. There's more and more people, 55 Nobel laureates just issued a statement on my behalf, and 37 bar associations have filed a 40-page judicial ethics complaint against Judge Kaplan. It's all in the record. You just have to read it to understand what he really did. And I'm hopeful I will get through this. But one thing I do want to emphasize to your listeners is the case goes on regardless. There are other lawyers working on this. This is not my case. It is ultimately not about me. Um, it is about what Chevron did to the indigenous peoples and the rural communities in Ecuador who still suffer to this day, many of them dead already, others in danger of dying because of oil pollution. That's what this case is about. Trying to criminalize me is just a way to distract attention from the environmental crimes that Chevron committed I hope I will get through this. I'm confident I will. But regardless of the outcome of my personal case, the larger case will go on. Chevron faces enormous risk for what they did, and they are being held accountable. And I want to emphasize that. That is the main point. You are listening to EcoJustice Radio, a public-supported media outlet. Please consider making a donation to ensure that we can continue to provide socially and environmentally driven content. Donations can be made at ecojusticeradio.org or socal350.org. And we hope that you're enjoying part two of Amazon Defenders, Criminalizing Activism, the Stephen Donzinger case with guest Stephen Donzinger, New York-based human rights attorney, and our host, myself, Jessica Aldridge. Stephen, to help people better relate to your situation, you are facing similar limitations as I would say for people to understand like Julian Assange. 
How restricted are you in house arrest currently? And and what are some of the other limitations that have been imposed upon you that we haven't uh, previously spoken about on today's show? Well, okay. So I wouldn't compare myself to, to Julian. I think he is in a very, very difficult and unfair situation. Um, Belmarsh prison and, you know, outside London, I'm, I'm in my home. Um, and as bad as it is, I still am in my home. But the basic restrictions are significant, you know? I mean, first of all, I'm a lawyer who has done nothing wrong. And for a judge to charge him with criminal contempt, Judge Kaplan did, and he appointed his friend Loretta Prescott to be the presiding judge. She's a, she's a member of the Federalist Society, which Chevron is a major donor. He brought the charges to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They usually prosecute cases, and they turned down his case. He then appointed a private law firm called Seward and Kissel to prosecute me in the name of the government. Seward and Kissel, it was disclosed seven months into this after they pushed for my home detention, actually represented Chevron as recently as 2018, still represents Chevron to some degree. So you basically have a judge with financial ties to Chevron, a prosecutor with financial ties to Chevron, and Kaplan himself, the charging judge, um, has disclosed in his financial, his public financial statement that he has investments in a mutual fund which owns Chevron stock. These people are conflicted, and this case is, you know, should never have been bought, and I think is severely tainted, and that's why they're denying me a jury, and they're trying to basically abuse their power, meaning Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska, and the prosecutor, who, by the way, is getting paid by taxpayers at the rate of $300 an hour, and has already billed, we estimate, around $400,000 to prosecute me on a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor. Um, So there's something really off about this. I would challenge anyone of your listeners to find me one person in the United States other than me who's charged with a misdemeanor who has no criminal record and is under pretrial detention in his or her home or anywhere. I think I'm the only one in the whole country. On top of that, they imposed an $800,000 bond on me, which luckily a friend of mine put up as security, but the $800,000 bond is higher than three of the four cops who killed George Floyd. And all of those four people, including the cop who put his knee on George Floyd's neck, are now out of prison under no restrictions. They've all posted bond. And here I am fighting for the human rights of people in Ecuador effectively with success in a case that's been validated by Ecuador's Supreme Court. And I'm in home detention for 16 months. There's no proportionality. I mean, I think if you look at this, it's very obvious it's wrongful and it's being motivated by a desire to, you know, as I mentioned, to help protect Chevron from a real legitimate environmental liability and to send a broader message. So it's scary. And I, I, I think it shouldn't be happening. And I, you know, I, I, I want everyone to know that this is happening because it doesn't just affect me, it affects all of us. It's designed to scare the heck out of people who do this kind of work. Yeah, and you you literally can't even go to the rooftop garden of your building. You've been disbarred without a hearing. They've frozen all of your bank accounts and I think stolen your money. 
And now you have, they're criminalizing your reputation. You're also married with a son, correct? So this is also affecting their lives. Um, well, it's designed to, you know, to, you know, <laughs> I mean, if, if someone said, well, what's Chevron's strategy on the case? I think it's ultimately designed to get anyone working on it to no longer work on it, to basically give up, to leave the people's, the affected communities in Ecuador defenseless without lawyers, because Chevron knows if there's no lawyers, it's not going to be a case. So by attacking me, they're attacking the whole idea of lawyering. And of course, it affects one's family. I mean, that's another pressure point that they try to bring to bear. You know, they want my son upset about seeing his dad with an ankle bracelet. By the way, I'm not just sitting at home. I have, I've had an ankle bracelet on my left ankle that is, I call it the black claw. It's about the size of a garage door opener. And I have, it's never been taken off since August 6, 2019. I shower with it, sleep with it, eat with it, walk with it when I can get out. I do get out on occasion with the permission of a court officer to go to legal meetings, medical appointments, or school-related events for my son. Um, so... You know, <laughs> it's really bizarre. The the claw had talks like when the battery runs low, you have to recharge it. If the battery recharging process doesn't work properly, it talks to me. It, there's like a recorded voice that comes on that says, you know, battery low, recharge unit, battery low, recharge unit. And when that happens in the middle of the night, you're trying to sleep, you know, you my wife wakes up, I wake up, and then I have to go recharge it. I can't tell how many times it's happened. And it's sort of destabilizing. It's like every time you crawl into bed, you're like, oh, my God, is it going to go off tonight? Because it, there's no, it doesn't, it, seem to, it seems to sort of have a mind of its own. Although that's improved lately because they got, they gave me a new one, with I think is a higher end kind of ankle bracelet, which, by the way, tracks my movements 24-7 and, you know, the technology exists, by the way, to eavesdrop on conversation through the ankle bracelet. I don't think that's happening with me, but, you know, you just, it's all just kind of, is a real intrusion into the, you know, the sanctity of one's privacy in one's home. And, um, yeah, it's really weird. You know, my son, <laughs> he's 13, 14 years old trying to tell his friends my situation is complicated. When his friends come over, there are those that know about it and those that don't. And those that don't, I have to wear long pants, you know, to make sure they don't see it. Um, it's very stressful. And also, you know, on the financial front, by locking me up, I mean, Judge Kaplan has deprived me of an ability to earn a living. He orchestrated my disbarment. Um, without a hearing based on these false findings, based on the paid Chevron witness, which I'm challenging. Um, and and you might remember, I said they, they sued me for $60 billion, but on the eve of trial, they dropped all those damages claims to avoid a jury. But so Judge Kaplan, after he ruled against me based on this Chevron paid witness, then allowed Chevron to pursue me for $32 million in their own legal fees. And he's ruled that I owe them 
millions and millions of dollars that I don't have. So I'm essentially bankrupt. And based on those rulings, which I've appealed, even though they're under appeal, he authorized Chevron to seize all my money and freeze my bank accounts. So I'm completely dependent now on my wife and my legal defense fund, which is a good way to tell people that, um, you know, I'm 59 years old with a wife and a son and I'm just flat out wiped out, you know. Um, we have a fund that's held in trust in a law firm in Seattle called Friedman Rubin and if people wish to help me and the people of Ecuador, because the fund is used to pay household expenses for my family, as well as legal fees for lawyers involved in the case, which by the way are modest. I mean, most of the lawyers now are working pro bono, but you can go to a website called donzigerdefense.com. It's one word, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, defense.com. And you can learn, there's a bunch of articles about the case on the website, and you can see all the people who are supporting and you can also make a donation electronically. If you, if you prefer to send a check, there's an address on the website. But again, it's donzigerdefense.com. And if you want to help but are in a position to donate, go to the website anyway. There's a button where you can click on and join the campaign. Um, and you'll get newsletters. And, you know, on occasion we ask people to take action, you know, contact a congressperson or the ethics body in the court, that kind of thing. And you can participate in this campaign. We've already gotten 16,000 people to sign up and we want to grow this thing because, you know, this, again, this isn't just about me in this case. We want to grow this movement to make sure that the affected communities in Ecuador collect on their judgment and are able to implement the cleanup that will save the environment and save lives down there. And is, and, and Chevron even threatened the communities in Ecuador with a lifetime of litigation uh, as you have right now, almost a lifetime of litigation, right? And, and they said if they if they keep fighting, if they keep asking for the money that's owed to them, that Chevron's just going to bury them in litigation. So and, and so what you're talking about is how, you know, how can people, how can our listeners support um, in that action? You know, making sure that that Chevron, you know, is held accountable and that, you know, that that, that they're um, that any finances that are coming up, that there's this help. Um, exactly right. And let me, let me be clear. Um, so, cause I, you know, it's, again, it's, I feel like this is way too much about me. There's a lot of lawyers working. There's a lot of incredible lawyers defending me in my particular case, including Lauren Regan. I don't know if you know Lauren from the Eugene, Oregon based civil liberties defense. You can go to CLBC.org and learn about her organization. They're specialized in defending protesters from slap lawsuits and, if you can help out her organization, it's a nonprofit, that would also be good. And then here in New York, I have a very well-known lawyer, defense lawyer named Ron Kuby, who used to practice with Bill Kunstler. I don't know if those names ring a bell, but these are old, aggressive defense lawyers. Marty Garbus, legendary civil rights attorney. Charles Nesson is one of my old professors at Harvard Law School. Rick Friedman, who has stood by me for years pro, on a pro bono basis, Zoe Littlepage, two of the best trial lawyers, I think, in the country. So we have a lot of people fighting hard, and Chevron's threat to bury us in a lifetime of litigation, I think, is failing because, you know, that threat is premised on us just, oh, my God, a lifetime of litigation. They have unlimited resources. Why are we even doing this? Why don't we just quit? 
And rather than quit, you know, people are really redoubling their efforts. Um, our team is extremely determined. Chevron faces massive risk. And I think it's important to point out before we end our discussion here tonight that the Ecuadorans have won the case. And see, one of the things that happens when you focus on me and my plight is it sometimes can be demoralizing. It almost plays into Chevron's narrative, right? Like that it's about me and about their attacks on me. When what it really is about is this great historic victory against all odds that the indigenous peoples and the rural farmers in Ecuador won against Chevron in a court of law, fair and square, playing by the rules. Chevron hates that. The entire fossil fuel industry hates that. So they threaten people and they say, we're going to, rather than pay the judgment, we're going to spend two or $3 billion on 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to fight you guys. And we're going to criminalize you. And we're going to find a judge who's sympathetic to us who's going to screw you. And isn't it ironic that we, meaning the Ecuadorians, showed up here in New York in federal court in 1993 trying to get justice. The courthouse doors were closed. They were told to go down to Ecuador, which they did. After winning the case there, Chevron then comes back to the same court that shut the courthouse doors to the Ecuadorians in 1993, the same court to file this racketeering lawsuit against me and the Ecuadorians. And then the courthouse doors are suddenly open to them. And, you know, I will say this to all of us who care about the environment. I think there's a real neglect on the power of courts to mess up the environmental movement. I mean, you're seeing this, and you're going to see this more and more now with our Supreme Court, now that it has a 6-3 conservative majority. You know, there's a big issue now whether climate change lawsuits over damages caused by climate change against the fossil fuel industry can be heard in state or federal court. That's a big legal issue. The industry's trying to get them all in federal court where the judiciary is much more, the judges are much more conservative and it's harder to win. And that question is now before the U.S. Supreme Court with Amy Coney Barrett now on the court. And, you know, the, the ability of the Trump administration to use the Federalist Society, which is Chevron funded and gets major donations from a lot of corporations and law firms, um, to stack the federal judiciary, you know, to be used as a pipeline um, to put conservative, anti-regulatory, pro-fossil fuel judges into the court system um, is making the ability to combat climate change really much more difficult. I mean, it's manifesting in our case with regard to what's happening to me, but luckily our case is an Ecuador judgment being enforced in countries like Canada, so it doesn't have to have to do with the U.S. judicial system. But people need to pay more attention, in my view, to what's happening with our judiciary. The effects of Chevron and and their my care the effects of Chevron and their extraction of oil, their the plight of the indigenous people in in the in the Amazon. It's not just central to just the Amazon. It's also that that material is being shipped to the United States to be refined. El Segundo is the largest processor of Amazonian crude in the world. Should Chevron, should they be allowed to continue conducting business in the United States considering their flouting of the Ecuadorian judgment and the refusal to conduct any type of cleanup and reparations in the Amazon? 
that's a you know I'm really happy you raised that question, Jessica. I think that's really important. I mean, you know, the the, the sort of the philosophical question is as a society, if a company is a serial polluter and does it deliberately, as Chevron did in Ecuador, and is held accountable in a court of law and refuses to pay the judgment, should they just be allowed to operate as if they're a company in good standing and go around the world, whether it be California or Nigeria or Israel, Chevron just entered the Israeli energy market, and just be allowed to bid on projects as if they're a company in good standing? I mean, I think people need to think about that because I don't think a company should be allowed to go exploit vulnerable people in the Amazon, pollute systematically and deliberately, run away with the profits and leave behind an environmental calamity that's killing people and leave the very people who are poisoned with the cleanup bill. Because that's what's happened in Ecuador because they won't pay it. So the people are suffering all the consequences of the fact that Chevron externalizes its costs of production into the environment. And literally, people are dying. So how can this company come into California and take the very crude that is produced in Ecuador where it caused this massive calamity and refine it in California, creating all sorts of pollution problems in California, which we see in the El Segundo refinery up in Richmond and that refinery where in in 2012 there was a big fire and 15,000 people in the local community had to go get hospital treatment because of respiratory problems. I mean, these are mass industrial poisonings, whether it be in Ecuador or Richmond. And our regulatory system and our court system is simply not up to the task of enforcing the law to such a degree that they don't have an incentive to keep behaving in this reckless or deliberately criminal manner, as in the case in Ecuador, where they actually made a decision to pollute you know, as opposed to it being an accident. So I think that's a question Californians need to ask themselves. You know, can't, should the California authorities be giving licenses to Chevron to operate in California when they have completely screwed over the people of Ecuador and are ignoring court judgments and violating the rule of law? You know, I don't think companies should be allowed to violate the rule of law in one place and then show up in another country and promise to be good citizens. It doesn't work that way. And they take advantage, you know, because legal systems are state or national in scope. And Chevron operates in a multinational manner in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. They can just move around, um, hire lawyers to obstruct efforts to hold them accountable. And in the meantime, you know, continue to take out profits in California. And by the way, there's a, you know, you probably are aware of this abandoned well issue in California where there's thousands of abandoned oil wells, you know, some owned by Chevron and other oil companies just sitting there polluting soils and groundwater. Like, who's going to pay for that cleanup? You know, how can these companies continue to operate without cleaning up their past messes? And... You know, the fact is the oil industry, Chevron and other companies are, in my opinion, grifters, meaning they grift off the rest of us. You know, they take out the profits and they leave behind the cleanup bill to the public. And that's exactly what they've done in Ecuador. They're doing that to a great degree in California and they're doing that in a lot of other countries around the world. It's very, very disturbing. And I think until we wake up and deny 
the Chevrons of the world the license to operate unless they comply with the law when they operate, no matter where they operate, the climate crisis will continue to accelerate. You know, our legal system, our judges, our, regula our regula uh, regulatory authorities need to step up and enforce the law properly. Our last question here. What would you say to activists, community organizers, and even lawyers to how they should be involved overall? What, what is their place in making sure that change happens, not just for what's happened in Ecuador and holding holding Chevron accountable, but just overall, because we, we are talking about some heavy stuff here and we are talking about Chevron coming after yourself, coming after the Ecuadorian people, them, you know, winning a case and then Chevron saying, nope, I'm not going to pay for this. So what do we learn from this? How do we move forward? How do we feel empowered to move forward? I mean, that was a massive case that the Ecuadorian people won. And so in addition to that, and before we, we, before we end here today, just remind people as well where they can get more information, what websites they can go to, and how they can support what's happening. Yeah, sure. So again, um, you know, to really learn about the case, to help out, go to donzigerdefense.com, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. There's another website called Make Chevron Clean Up, one word, makechevroncleanup.com, which is the English language website of the FDA, which is the plaintiff's group in Ecuador, and you can sign up for the campaign there. I Look, I think people need to feel empowered by this story. I hope they do. I speak a lot to young law students around the country, and you know, this is an inspirational story. The fact that the communities in Ecuador united and took on, you know, aligned themselves with international lawyers and funders and donors and over 27 years have been able to sustain a case against Chevron and win it such that Chevron feels so aggrieved and they feel so much risk that they're spending two, three billion dollars, 60 law firms, 2,000 lawyers. I mean, that's a victory. That's a significant measure of accountability. That's real money that they're having to spend to continue to engage in their subterfuge and their illegal activity. And it hasn't worked. In other words, they haven't extinguished their risk. If anything, it's gotten bigger. The interest accumulates on the judgment. And as more and more people awaken to their atrocity, and by the way, Vice Media just did a really great report, which I recommend to people. If you go on to the Vice website, it's called the world's largest uh, oil disaster you've never heard of. Um, it's a 10-minute video that focuses on what's happened to me, but it really brings in the whole picture of what happened in Ecuador. It has some fabulous, fabulous footage and photos. Again, it's on Vice Media. People are awakening to Chevron's atrocity and Chevron's illegal attacks on lawyers. And ultimately, we think we're gaining ground. And they're only doing this because the people of Ecuador were successful. Not because they did something wrong, but because they did something right. And this is how the fossil fuel industry works. So, you know, I would encourage people to learn about this and read about it. There's a lot of pretty good articles out there, which you can get on that website, Donziger Defense, some of which you can get on that website. Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, just wrote a fabulous story about this on the Sheer Post website. 
Robert Shear's website. He used to be the national reporter for the LA Times. And there's just a lot more people focusing on this, on the Intercept wrote a great story, the nation. Oh, by the way, people can get more immediate updates by following me on Twitter. Forgot about that. I sort of got onto Twitter a couple of years ago and I, I have a fair number of followers. My handle is at S Donziger. And you can get a bunch of these articles if you just go down my recent tweets and there's links to them and that kind of stuff. So follow me on Twitter if you can and you can get regular case updates. But again, the important point is the Ecuadorians have won the case. Chevron is running scared. That's why they're attacking me. That's why they're hiring lawyers all over the place to try to obstruct the collection of the judgment. But I believe ultimately the Ecuadorians will collect the judgment and be able to do a cleanup. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us and sharing the story of the Ecuadorian people as well. Thank you, Jessica, for the opportunity and good luck in your continued good journalism. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thank you to our guest today, Stephen Donzinger, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been part two of Amazon Defenders, Criminalizing Activism, the Stephen Donzinger case. Be sure to tune in to the next two episodes of Amazon Defenders. In part three, we will explore how the implications of deforestation, fires, and COVID are affecting Brazil and the eastern Amazon region. And in part four, we will speak to indigenous rights activists on how they are creating a model of resistance and international solidarity to build solution-based alternatives and protect cultural survival. Also, please connect with us on social media. You can find us at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventurism Waste, my nonprofit. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, subscribe to the podcast. Share the episodes, get them out there, and help us continue our efforts by please making a donation at ecojusticeradio.org. You have been listening to EcoJustice Radio, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on all major podcast apps and ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Eit, producer Amelia Barras, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures and Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.